Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Why choose a Sleep Number Smart Bed? Can I make my side softer? Can I make my side firmer? Whenever I want? Can, Can we, we sleep, sleep cooler? Sleep Number does that. Cools up to eight times faster and lets you choose your ideal comfort on either side. 94% of Sleep Number smart sleepers report better sleep. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. Today's guest has spent his life serving the Alabama community through multiple branches of law enforcement, and now he's taking that experience to the Office of Emergency Management. Jim Coker is the Emergency Management Agency Director for Jefferson County, Alabama, and we're sitting down with him to discuss the effectiveness of outdoor sirens when severe weather is approaching and many other things. We've heard countless stories of how people did or didn't hear sirens before being hit by a tornado. But should an outdoor siren be their main warning sign? Let's discuss. Jim, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Good morning. Thank well, you. let's just let's give people some bearings because they may not be familiar with Jefferson County, but that's generally the Birmingham area. Is that correct? It is. It's Birmingham. Yeah. So we're talking about um, metropolitan Birmingham and surrounding areas as part of Jefferson County. Let me just give you a little bit of Jim's background before we dive into a conversation. And Jim, I'm going to ask you this question so you can be thinking about it while I give your background. Because I always, when we have people on Weather Geeks, I want to know how they got into the field that they, they got into. And normally I'll ask, well, how did you become a Weather Geek? So I'm going to ask you in a second, how did you become an emergency management geek? And, but before we do that, uh, Jim was appointed director of, of his organization September 2014 after serving as incident commander for Central Alabama. Uh, he's got a bachelor's degree from the University of Alabama, so I'm pretty sure he wants to say Roll Tide in there somewhere. Uh, master's degree from Faulkner University, where he continues to teach courses as an, as an adjunct professor. And before that, he also served as, in law enforcement as a law enforcement officer for 35 years, uh, working with the University of Alabama's uh, police department, Tuscaloosa County Sheriff's Department, and the city of Hoover Police Department, where he retired as captain in 2014. He's also served as an instructor at the State Trooper Academy for over 11 years and as a graduate of the FBI National Academy, among many other things. Uh, and from 2007 to 2014, I want to get this in as well. He served as the Alabama All Hazards Incident Management on that team, the incident management team. So this is clearly someone that has a really interesting background for someone that appears on Weather Geeks, but one that's very relevant when we talk about law enforcement and emergency management. So how? Was when you were a child or in high school, did you envision being an emergency management professional or were you more interested in law enforcement or something completely different? Dr. Shepard, I really didn't know I was heading in this direction. Uh, I grew up in Mobile and as a very little fella, I remember several hurricanes. Uh, Hurricane Camille was the last one that we experienced on the coast before we moved to Birmingham. And that's a night I'll never forget because one by one, the radio stations went off the air. We could hear trees falling just left and right. And then we saw the aftermath. 
So that's really my first strong memory of a major weather event. But in high school, I became involved with a, uh, a Red Cross disaster team, high school disaster team. And we got deployed to the super outbreak of tornadoes in 1974. So we were teenagers, which meant we had unlimited energy, which meant we could haul a lot of boxes. We could turn a lot of uh, you know, debris over helping people. And then when we got tired, they gave us about five minutes off and then right back to work again. <laughs> uh, I did meet your colleague, or actually I was talking to James Spann and he and I were at the same area in the same time. And that's when he kind of got his start also. Yeah. Shout uh, out to James Spann. I, I suspect yeah. that Jim knew James well. Jim J- James Spann is a good friend of mine and colleague and a legend in, in the state of Alabama for sure. I mean, he could run for any office probably there and win it. And I'm, I've been kidding him about doing so. So shout out to James Spann over there in Birmingham and also the Weather Rains folks. So you really even though you're sort of in emergency management and law enforcement before that, there is a sort of a, a traceability back to weather for you, as you mentioned, those hurricanes and then the, the 74 tornado outbreak. Absolutely. And even, even before Camille, uh, half of my family was from New Orleans. Oh, wow. I remember, you know, my uncle calling us during Hurricane Betsy. Um, so that takes us way back in the, the weather history here. Yeah, yeah. A lot of our listeners may be a little too young to yeah, uh, they, be familiar with yeah. Camille and Betsy. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I think Camille happened uh, just when I was a, a young boy or, or so, but, uh, you know, unfortunately, we have a lot of Camille-like storms that have happened in recent years. So, you know, you you kind of went on to college, you were in law enforcement and so forth. Um, tell us a little bit about your background and training that got you to the point for the jobs that you have done in recent years and that you do now. I mean, what, what, what did you need to do? Are there certain college degrees that you need or certain experience that you need to acquire? You know, that has changed since I graduated because I graduated in 1980. And in 1980, uh, the degree really was public administration or some type of management back then if you wanted to go further in government service. And as you very well know, there are so many degrees now in career tracks with degrees that take you into emergency management or all things weather that didn't exist back then. Um, in a lot of ways, I wish that, uh, you know, this was my time to go to college because I <laughs> would love to see what's going on with it. It's, it's, uh, yeah. But the training, um, we really didn't have a good training track early, but as more courses became available, then we got to attend more and more, and I became interested in the management side. How do you manage an event, a small event, a large event? How do you manage a pre-planned event? That's, uh, many cases of the same same structure. Yeah. It's kind of changed up a bit here and there. That, and that's the, yeah, you're right about that because even at the University of Georgia, and I'm, I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Jim Coker, who's the emergency EMA director for Jefferson County, Alabama, which is essentially the Birmingham area. Uh, even at the University of Georgia now, we have a disaster management program that's, mm-hmm. that lives over in the, the, the School of Public Health at UGA. And, you know, my, my good friend, Claude Craig, uh, you may or may not know Claude, he's up in Whitfield County, Georgia, Dalton, Georgia. He used to be the head of uh, the Georgia Emergency Management Association. Uh, he often actually asked me, Dr. Shepard, why don't you guys develop a course on weather? Because I think a lot of emergency managers would like to take a little short course, online course on weather. So it's actually something I've been thinking about uh, from my hat, wearing my hat as Director of Atmospheric Sciences at UGA. So, you know, this is a good pivot to where I wanted to start my discussion with you because 
outdoor warning systems and sirens for tornadoes, they can be controversial in some ways because there are people that will say, and you know, as we are seeing, it seems more tornadic outbreaks in, in the South. People say, well, I didn't hear the siren. You know, and you know, there's there's this discussion about are you supposed to hear the siren if you're inside? So give us a little bit of background and perspective on what these outdoor warning systems are designed to do. What are they designed to do and not do? Well, by the name, they're designed to alert you if you're outside. But even if you're outside, you could have a delay because if the siren is pointing opposite away from you, if it's windy and noisy because of a storm, you may not hear it until the siren rotates around in your direction. So these truly are designed to be outdoor warning sirens. And, uh, you know, to your statement about I didn't hear my siren, I didn't hear a siren, or I did hear the siren. uh, We test ours once a month, and we've got 255 sirens here. And I remember one call, a lady called and complained because she couldn't hear her siren. Well, ma'am, why couldn't you hear the siren? Well, it turned out she was in her basement doing laundry. Right. Okay. Um, so to that point, that siren would not have helped her at all had that been a warning. Right. If she'd been outside in her driveway, she probably, she would have heard it. You know, and the good news in that particular case is at least she was in her basement. So that's certainly one of the places. And it was a test. <laughs> it, it, it was a test. But yeah, this is one of the things that I've seen so many years over the last oh, decade or so when we have tornadoes and unfortunately fatalities or death or destruction. People really complain about not hearing them. In many cases, they were inside. I just think it's one of those things that people uh, don't know. They just understand that there's a siren, uh, but they are outdoor warning sirens. Now, now speaking of sirens, Jefferson County started installing, I guess, a new siren system in around 2016 or so. Um, and from what I understand, there's some things a little bit different about this system. Tell, tell us how these this system is a little bit different than perhaps some of the standard or older systems. Okay. In 2016, uh, the sirens that were installed were replacements for ancient sirens uh, that were really end of life. So we did get a federal grant to do that. Uh, what is different now than then, uh, in the past, if we had to activate the sirens, they were activated countywide. And the problem there is you may be 30 miles south of a storm that's moving north or east or not in your direction in any case. But you sounded all 255 sirens. Right. Uh, now the sirens are designed to, to activate in the, the event of a polygon issued by the National Weather Service. So that actually led to a re-education effort that's still underway because we have a tornado warning and then people will call, I didn't hear my siren. Yeah. You didn't hear your siren because you were never in any danger. Right. Uh, the storm was east of you and moving further east and, you know, but uh, so it's a whole lot better now. What, what are your thoughts, uh, Jim, on, on the polygon? I know we were talking about James Spann and one of the things he always talks about is fear of the polygon. And exactly. I taught a course at the University of Georgia on weather risk and communication. And we read some papers and litter studies that suggested that a lot of the just average people don't really understand sometimes what the polygon's showing them. They don't know if they're in, in the middle of the polygon is where the tornado is or the, at the end of the tornado. Or So yeah, what, is, what is your thought on the efficacy of the polygon? And, you know, it is what it is. It's what we have. But are you happy with it? Are there things that we can improve about it and so forth? What are your thoughts? I think the, the improvement 
is on the public education side. And this goes back to something else, a question I know you're going to ask me is how do we educate people to find themselves on a map? Absolutely. Cause I, I, I know there were studies at university of Alabama that raised some questions about that. Absolutely. And, um, We've been working very closely with the University of Alabama uh, because I think what they're doing there is really interesting. But you've got to educate, educate people to understand where they are. So one of the things that we do in the education process is if you get a warning by any means, then that means you're in the polygon. It means your life's in danger. And maybe that takes a little bit off of them trying to understand what a polygon really is. But just your life's in danger. So the warning has been issued. Uh, I like the polygons because it reduces the, the threat area from countywide down to a more specific area. Yeah. And uh, the problem with the countywide was people hear them over and over and over. They never see a tornado. They have no damage, so they begin to ignore it. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Jim Coker, who is the Emergency Management Agency Director for, uh, our, I guess, the largest city in, in Alabama, Birmingham, and, and surrounding areas, Jefferson County. So, uh, one of the things, the, the, the framing for this podcast episode is very important. And I want to use this time to just sort of remind people that Tornado Alley has traditionally been the Great Plains region, Texas, Kansas, Oklahoma, and so forth. But in recent years, we have seen a shift in tornado activity, and there are studies that suggest that you know, we're seeing more activity uh, in the South. And that's particularly concerning to those of us that live in the South, like Jim and me, because you know we don't have like large, expansive areas of flat plains. We have densely populated areas. A lot of homes that aren't necessarily designed to withstand tornadic storms. Uh, many of the tornadoes that happen here in the South are happen at night. They're uh, nocturnal storms, looks, uh, what we call in meteorology, QLCS type systems, quasi-linear convective system type storms that spin up on these little lines. So it's a, it's a challenging forecast problem. So the work that Jim and his colleagues do uh, is critically important. Now I want to sort of throw out a provocative question to you, Jim. Some say we should get rid of the siren networks entirely. What are your thoughts to people that say that? My thoughts are, number one, um, the siren system is very expensive uh, to maintain and, and to repair. Uh, these are mechanical devices, and they can be taken out of service by a squirrel if the squirrel chews on the right wire. 
many other reasons a lightning strike can take them down. So first of all, can a community afford it uh, is one thing. We tend to look at sirens, outdoor warning sirens, as a tool in the warning toolbox. We do not want this to ever be your only way of getting a tornado warning. We want it to be a, a, a tool in the toolbox, but we want you to have many other ways to get the warning. Well, let's talk about what some of those tools are. What are some other ways that if you are, if you're going out to the Rotary Club or the local church and talking about this, what do you uh, as a director advise people to have in that toolbox? Well, first of all, check with your county where you live to see if they have some type of a mass notification system that you can sign up to get alerts. Uh, your community may actually use that same system for other types of alerts, such as hazardous materials. It's a good thing to have in your toolbox anyway, uh, but you can get weather alerts like that. Um, local television apps are great. Uh, I've got every local television station in our area on my phone, and I think my phone will vibrate into many pieces every time I get an alert, but that's all right because I'm getting an alert. Um, Stay tuned in to local media. Stay tuned in to the Weather Channel. Uh, in 2011, I remember watching in horror as the very large, very violent tornado moved across the northern part of Birmingham. I was watching on the Weather Channel. And then at the same time, thinking about how this was going to change our life for the next many weeks. So check local. Check with your community. Check nationally. Know, have alerts, have multiple ways of getting warnings. What are, you, what are your thoughts? Because I see this a lot and I'm pretty active in social media, uh, things like Twitter and Facebook, Snapchat and so forth. And one of the things that I've just noticed is that certain social media is better than others at getting real-time information out. For example, Facebook, you might post something and see it a day later. Snapchat and Twitter tend to be a, a bit more immediate. Um, uh, what are your thoughts on the efficacy of social media? Uh, and, and I think you just touched on it exactly. Uh, the different algorithms, algorithms that the different social media platforms use to push messages out do not make an effective tornado warning system. Uh, because you're exactly right. It could be hours later. It could be a day later. And by then, it's way too late. Yeah. I think they're very effective in public awareness, but not public warning. Right. And, and I've heard a lot of people in your world sort of say that as well. I've seen some of the TV folks will do these things like Facebook lives or Instagram lives. And that, that's a way to inject them into a more immediate sort of space with the warnings. But certainly these algorithms can be problematic. Um, I, I've heard some talk again, wearing my hat as a former EMS president and others. Uh, I've heard some talk about a national um, siren protocol. Does that exist now? And should it? Uh, it does not exist, and I think that is really threat-based because there are some counties and some states uh, where it is so rare to see a tornado, a, t a tornadic storm, you know, is it worth the cost? And there is a, a cost-weighing process that would have to be gone through. Uh, in the areas that you and I live, we're very hilly, you know, we're the foothills of the Appalachian chain. Uh, it's not flat, and... That's one reason why we have so many sirens in this county, because every nook and cranny in our county uh, may block the sound over the hill. Yeah. So uh, I think that's really community based on that, on how you make that decision. Now, what about in, in Alabama or perhaps even in Jefferson County? Uh, 
do you have a policy that warns exclusively with the sirens on tornadoes or do you, will you also activate them for a severe weather warning, which encompasses the threat of a tornado, hail of a certain size or gust winds of a certain mile per hour threshold? So do you just use the sirens for tornadoes? That's correct. Uh, and this county is just tornadoes and it's based on the National Weather Service tornado warning. Yeah, I was curious about that because I, I, I've, heard, I've heard some questions about that. I, I want to stay with this discussion on other technologies and weather and warning responses. Um, there have been observations that many people need two to three forms of verification before they act. I mean, I, 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 and I see this not just in weather. You know, sometimes people, my mom used to say, some people are from show me state. You got to show them before they believe. So there is some evidence that people need two or three forms of verification before they act, whether they are sirens or app or broadcasts or some of the other things you mentioned. Um, many even sometimes need to see evidence of a tornado themselves. So the question I'm really getting to is, uh, and you kind of touched on this a little bit, how do we get people over that threshold in terms of educating people about the threat? Or is this just the, a, a facet of human nature that people need multiple confirmation <laughs> before they act? Because, we, we, you know, they might get the warning and still not leave, right? You know, you probably know Dr. Laura Myers at Alabama. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think we all know her. And the research that she's doing there is fascinating to me because it's how how do you make people take action? What words are the words that provoke people into seeking safety, which may save their lives? Uh, how do you motivate these folks to take action and instead of having them run outside and, and look down the driveway and look across the horizon? You know exactly exactly what you're saying. So I'm really encouraged to see a lot of research into the psychology of the warning because I think that will be an ever-increasing player as we move forward. What will motivate you to go to your basement instead of going to your driveway and look? Yeah. You may only have seconds. So what words can be used to motivate you? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating, I, 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 I was just telling a national reporter just yesterday, in fact, I was doing an interview on something else. And I was saying, look, the next great advances in weather warnings probably aren't going to be a new radar or satellite. It's just going to be what we learn about psychology and communication and how people perceive information. And that's why the work of people like Dr. Laura Meyer and Susan Jasko, who's there at the University mm -hmm. of Alabama and others, is so critical. And a big hello to those folks that they're listening in, some good, important colleagues that I've had a chance to interact with over my years uh, as well. Um, so, uh, Dr. Marshall? If I can interject something here. Please do. Most people are not aware, I'm sure you are, of the coordinated effort that is being done by many universities, such as um, Alabama, Auburn, you know, Georgia. Uh, there's a large consortium in the academic world of people that are working together. And so if we have a meeting or if we have data that we need, it may not come from anything anywhere in this state. Right. They come from Pennsylvania. It may come from, you know, Nebraska. It just depends on who's in the consortium. Yeah. So yeah. I want to give a big thank you to the academic world because you're all working very closely together, not only on the psychology, but on many, many different areas, such as building safety at yeah. Auburn University. Uh, of course, Dr. Myers at Alabama uh, yeah. and many other people. So. Oh, yeah. No, you know, I think it's important that you say and thank you for saying that, because, you know, as a professor at a university, I think most people just kind of see us as professors that teach. And that's what that's the question I get when I tell someone I'm a professor. The first question out of their mouth is, what do you teach? 
well, I, I teach meteorology in various courses, but what people don't realize is that a significant part of what we do at these big universities is research, and not only research, but research that has, you know, crossover uh, impacts for society and stakeholders. And so uh, that's a big part of what we do. One more question before we go to our next break. Um, you know, there's been a, dis- a lot of discussion. We, I think our warning rate on average is out, uh, for tornadoes these days is about 14, 15 minutes. Uh, there's a discussion about whether we could get that up to a one hour warning lead time on a tornado. And the question is, we might be able to do it, but there's some that say, should we do it? In other words, by giving people that much lead time, it could introduce a danger in itself because people might say, well, I still got time to run to the grocery store, go pick up my kid at school and so forth. You got any thoughts on that? Because it's just an interesting discussion that I've seen in our field. You know, I've I've not seen as much discussion on it, but uh, I think you're exactly right. You don't need to run get bread and milk uh, before the tornado hits your community. Um, You know, it's interesting. In 2011, I guess we'll talk about that more in a little bit. um, I had family who saw the tornado being broadcast live for 40 minutes. The thing was west of Tuscaloosa, and they watched it come. Yeah. They prepared for the tornado by making a sandwich. Yeah. And then lost everything they had except for wow. their lives. Wow. So I think to your point, now this is family. Uh and talking to him later, it's like we should have taken action quicker. Yeah. So that's 40 minutes. That's not far away from an hour. So, you know, that may illustrate your point. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back on the Weather Geeks podcast, very interesting discussion with Jim Coker, EMA director for Jefferson County, Alabama. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. And I, I do want to now kind of pivot more into the super outbreak of 2011 because we all watched it. Those of us that are weather attentive were very aware of what was going on. And from what I have in my notes from the producers, you came on board. Uh, with the Alabama EMA uh, just after the super outbreak of 2011, but you were involved as a law enforcement uh, at the time. Um, Give us one, your experience, you know, with that event, just what, what, what was going on with you personally from a professional standpoint and so forth during that, that significant outbreak? Well, I'm going to jump back to 1974 for a minute. Please do, because I know there's some context you might want to give there. Yeah, you know, occasionally uh, I'll go back now and I'll look at the headlines, newspaper headlines from the storms. And uh, those are all grainy black and white pictures now. My memories of 1974 are in vivid color. 
In 2011, I'm watching live a monster tornado hit Tuscaloosa and then move across the northern Birmingham, Jefferson County area. And that was all live in vivid color. And I came uh, to the Jefferson County EMA in 2014. So the, the memories were still fresh. The paperwork, believe me, was not completed yet, uh, three years after the storm. But my role then was uh, in law enforcement was to help organize teams to go to the communities that were devastated to relieve their personnel because many of them lost their homes. Uh, they were personally impacted. So these teams, law enforcement teams from many agencies went in to help relieve them so they could begin picking up their lives again. And, uh, you know, once again, you see the same devastation uh, if you're from the South, you know what a freshly broken pine tree smells like. And, uh, you know, that is almost an overwhelming smell. So it's it's sensory, not quite sensory overload, but it's a lot of sensory information that you've got coming in that you'll never forget. So that was primarily our role was to, to help relieve them. Now, when we think about an event like the super outbreak of 2011 and our thoughts and prayers are to those that, you know, were impacted by that event and, and many others that have since happened in the South. This is a multi worst case scenario event. What I mean by that, there, were lack, there was lack of power, multiple rounds of severe weather, uh, you, know, you know, large densely populated areas affected. How does that make your job in emergency management that much more difficult? You've got the weather event itself, which is problematic enough, but then you have all the other dominoes falling as this is happening. Uh, talk us through the sort of the command center. What's going on as someone in your role on a day like that? Well, one of my coworkers here now uh, was a fire chief for the city of Estavia Hills, Alabama, which is in Jefferson County. And around 530 in the morning, they were hit by a tornado. It was one of the very first ones. And of course, we'd heard all the talk about tomorrow is going to be a tornado day. Well, here's a tornado early. And for many people, it was like, well, now it's over. Uh, a problem with a day like that is when you start having storm after storm, now you're diluting your resources, you're diluting your people, you're diluting your response effort because they're having to go to multiple sites. And uh, that was a major concern, and I hope it's something we never see again. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, something just came to mind, and this is something that just came off the cuff that I wanted to ask you because we're heading, you know, we're, we're, we'll be coming into the spring tornado season soon for 2021. And of course, we're still dealing with COVID. Is that a worst case scenario for you? And I've often wondered what we do in a situation where we have an event like a 2011 outbreak and you, you might need to get people in shelters, yet you've got COVID. Uh, are, are, are you as an emergency management uh, administrator thinking about those scenarios? Absolutely. You know, where you and I live, um, first of all, we have COVID. Uh, second, we don't have enough shelters for the entire population. If we have an event and we tell people, you've got to seek shelter right now, uh, there's something that is going on and there's something that will be going on, I'll share with you in a second. Um, for me personally, I would risk COVID in order to protect myself from the known threat, which in this case is a tornado heading my way. You're not in the tornado shelter that long. You're not in there all day long. It's only a brief period of time. 
And you can mask up or take You can mask action. up and take yeah. it. Sure you can. Um, one thing that is underway right now will be in our legislature this spring, and that is uh, hopefully a new law to allow safer places, which is a very interesting concept to me because we could never have enough shelters here. But if you think about the story of the three little pigs, you know, the, the pig whose house was made out of straw would never survive a puff of wind. The little pig that had the house of bricks, that's a safer place. So this is a change in the Good Samaritan laws uh, to allow maybe you to welcome people into your stronger structure where they're more likely to survive because we don't have enough shelters. We can never have enough. There's not enough. Same here, same in our state as well, and, mo- and much yeah. of the South. It's just, and I think that's one of the issues that is emerging as we see tornadic activity ever increasingly shifting into the South. You know, you're, we're just not as prepared, not necessarily because of any fault. It's just we haven't, we weren't tornado alley. Uh, you know, we weren't, we weren't the Great Plains, but we're sort of shifting there. Yeah, and, and plus, uh, in December we hit our 100th tornado since 1950 in this county. Uh, not a mile mark. Uh, that you ever want to see, but it happened. And a lot of our tornadoes are not the big, see them come across the plains type tornadoes, but they're the almost the, the spin-up type um, that are not necessarily associated with a front coming through. So how do you have time to get to a shelter when you have no time to react to the warning itself? Yeah. But you might be able to get to a safer place. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. We'll have to keep our eye on those developments. Overall, with sort of recent outbreaks in Alabama and others, do you think those events fundamentally changed uh, Alabama's state emergency preparedness response and system? Uh, In other words, did things happen because of that event, (laughs) the 2011 or other big events in terms of changes? Um, Yes, uh, to answer the question. Uh, One thing that has happened is last year, the Alabama legislature passed a statewide notification law. So we are moving toward a system that can notify people in every county of a threat or a warning. And uh, that's significant because we have a lot of counties that simply can't afford to have a system like that now, but to going statewide will be phenomenal. Uh, Another thing about that type of system is it could track a storm across county lines. And right now, if you think about county lines, you think about contracts. So one county's got a contract for a system, the next county's got a contract for a system. The tornado doesn't see a contract. And this could help eliminate some of that, just to make it smoother. Uh, As we're drawing to a close here, we spent a lot of time talking about tornadoes and severe weather, but uh, in emergency management, I'm sure there are other types of things that you deal with. Uh, Other than severe weather, are there other weather-related things that that come to mind that your office like yours deals with most, uh, whether flooding, heat, I don't don't know? Uh, Flooding is certainly one. We are a very flood-prone county here. Uh, Another thing that most people don't realize is in our county, we have five interstates. Uh, We're much like your county. And we have a lot of hazardous materials incidents. Uh, the most, the largest recently was in December, uh, which was a 5,000 gallon acid spill on the interstate, which shut down two interstates for three days. Wow. Can the weather change in three days? Absolutely it can. So what about the safety of the people working? What about having to deal with the spilled product itself? Uh, weather could definitely have an impact on that. Uh, you know, what if 
rain washed something off the roadway. Um, weather's always going to play a part. Yeah, no, it is. And I, I was thinking about that situation where you have rain washing off the hazmat material into your streams and then it gets into your watersheds and a whole other set of issues. Exactly. And, and even now, as we're moving into COVID vaccination, many of these are large outdoor vaccination sites. What does weather do to that? Yeah, that's a good point. Every state in this country is trying to vaccinate as many people as they can, as rapidly as they can. Right. If you right. have to shut down a large site because of weather, that's an impact. That's an impact. That's a that's a great point, Jim, that I hadn't thought about. This has been an amazing conversation. Uh, Going to have to end it there. But where are there are there websites that you want to point people to? Or are you all on social media for your site, or just uh, your website's the best place to get your? Uh, we are um, our website jeffcoema.org. Okay. Uh, we are on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And also, I happen to be the president of the Alabama Association of Emergency Managers. I'm in my second year of a one-year term, uh, thanks to COVID. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, I get to pass the gavel eventually, but uh, please look at our website as well. Yeah, and I, even if you don't live in Alabama, I think the things that we've talked about today on this podcast are very relevant uh, to many places that you live, particularly if you experience severe weather. Before I get out of here, it's that time of the podcast where we recognize our geek of the week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's geek of the week is John Weatherby. John is a retired broadcast television meteorologist who's still active in delivering weather for radio. His favorite time of the year for weather is hurricane season, and John once stayed active leading his station's hurricane coverage in Savannah, Georgia, for over 24 hours straight. Wow, John. Now, if you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages to apply. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm looking forward to the next four hours of our conversation. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I'm Dr. Marshall. I really, we've been trying to get this one for a while, so I'm really glad you were able to make it. I'm, I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.